So Mark chapter 13 uh, is where we're going to spend our time this morning. I'm not what you would call an experienced boater. I spent most of my life in the Midwest, which according to experts is called landlocked. And so, uh, since living here, I've had a, a few fun opportunities to get out on boats with friends. And I've learned a lot in those little outings. Um, for example, I've learned that uh, here in Hingham Harbor, uh, you can't just, especially at low tide, you can't just get in your boat and then take off for open water. Uh, you have to follow the channel out of the harbor, right? And that channel is marked in some different ways. It's on your map, uh, stuff that you use to, to, to uh, guide your boat. Also, there are buoys that mark where the channel is. And if you keep your boat in between those channel buoys, then you're going to get out of the the muddy shallows, and you'll get out to open water where all the fun is. If you get outside of those buoys, especially at low tide, you're toast, right? You're, you're going to be embarrassingly stuck for everyone to see as they take their boats past you and giggle and say, oh, that's too bad, bless your heart. And then they go out and have fun, and you sit and watch them. So that channel and those channel buoys are vitally important for your boating fun. Wouldn't it be nice if we had something like those channel buoys to guide us as a church through the turmoil of this world? On every side of us, all kinds of trouble. If we were to go past this line or this line, we'd be uh, in really difficult situations very quickly. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a guide to tell us when you've got to turn left, when to go straight, when to turn right, all of that? Well, we do have that sort of guide, and it's Mark chapter 13. What channel buoys are for boaters, Mark chapter 13 is for the church in a world full of chaos and turmoil. Now, Mark chapter 13 is one of the most difficult chapters in the gospel of Mark to make sense of. Aren't you glad you came to church today? It's really challenging. It's challenging for a number of reasons. The content of the chapter is in some ways difficult to make sense of on your own. And then uh, there are many different points of view as to how chapter 13 ought to be interpreted. And, uh, and a lot of those people who have strong opinions on Mark 13 have very big voices and very loud microphones. So Mark 13 can seem intimidating. It can seem confusing. It can seem scary, in fact. Uh, but it doesn't have to be those things. It's in our best interest to do the hard work of study and uh, to give the time required to make sense of this chapter because not only is it one of the more difficult chapters of Scripture uh, in the Gospel of Mark, it is, I think, one of the most important also. So when you look out your window and you see the world just in turmoil around you, Mark 13 is that guide that helps us all the way through to the second coming of Christ. Now, disclaimer this morning, if you have already strong opinions about Mark 13 and what it represents and how it ought to be understood, there's a possibility that you and I might disagree today, and that's okay. You're free to be wrong if you want, and we'll still be friends. I'm joking. Uh, 
I welcome a discussion after the fact, but, uh, but just know that this is a chapter of Scripture that has a lot of different opinions. Uh, I'm going to pretend like we know nothing about it, and I'm going to present it in a way that, that I think is consistent to the text, faithful to the historical setting uh, and, the, and the prophecies made in it. Um, one of the more popular approaches to Mark 13, and I think an approach that's in error, is to say that Mark 13 deals only and exclusively with the end of all things and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Does Mark 13 deal with the second coming of Christ? Absolutely it does, but not exclusively so. Mark 13 deals with two historical events. I should say it deals from the perspective of Jesus with two future events. The first of those future events is his prophecy of the destruction of the temple and along with it, the city of Jerusalem. That's event number one. Event number two, at a date to be determined, is the second coming of Christ. Both of these events are in view in Mark chapter 13. In fact, here is a simple structure of Mark chapter 13. Don't worry about writing this down. Maybe you can make a few mental markers that might be helpful uh, for you. But the chapter can be broken down really into four pretty simple parts. Verses 1 through 23 describes information about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus gives a prophecy. His disciples ask a couple of questions. When's it going to happen? What are the signs? And Jesus talks about those things related to the destruction of the temple. Verses 24 through 27 is information about the return of Jesus, his second coming. If you want a fancy theological word, the parousia. 28 through 31 is a parable that teaches about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the last few verses, 32 through 37, is another parable that teaches about the second coming of Christ. So here are these two, from Jesus' perspective, two future events. The destruction of the temple, which happened in the year A.D. 70. The return of Christ, that's going to happen at a date yet to be announced. And then two parables that help us understand better each of those events. This morning, we're going to focus just on this first part, verses 1 through 23, and Jesus' teaching about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. On the next slide, I want to give you just a really simple structure of verses 1 through 23. Again, you don't need to worry about writing this down. I just want to give you sort of a mental map of where we're going because this material can be a bit difficult. But the first four verses, we have Jesus' prediction about the destruction of the temple along with two questions from his disciples. When's it going to happen and what are the signs? And then Jesus answers. From verses 5 to 13, he answers first by giving three non-signs. Here's things that are going to happen, but these are not signs of the destruction of the temple. And then in the last few verses, 14 through 23, he gives three warnings related to Jerusalem's destruction. So here's where you and I have to really, we have to make some commitments to the text this morning. Because it's easy for us to take what we read in verses 1 through 23 and take and and apply it to end times scenarios. And that's not the right way to handle these verses. Verses 1 through 23 are not about the second coming of Christ. They're about this event in which the Roman army destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So we're reading instructions from Jesus to his disciples, and then from, there, from them to the church at large to prepare them 
in this 40-year window before the Roman army descends on Jerusalem. We've got to keep ourselves rooted in that historical setting. And so, while it's challenging, and it's going to require a bit of mental effort on our part this morning, the payoff is really remarkable because we find in these 23 verses some timeless truths about our God that guides His church in every generation. The instructions are rooted in a historical context, but the principles we pull from them benefit the church in every century since then, especially today. And so my goal in preaching this passage today is to give stability to the church that exists in times of chaos. Here's a little tip for you. All times are times of chaos. So Mark 13, 1 through 23, gives guidance, steadiness to the church that lives in this chaotic world. I want to show you one more slide. This next slide is a picture of the Temple Mount. It's an artist's rendition of the temple. And uh, do your best to squint at it. You might have a picture in your Bible or something. But this is an artist's rendition of the temple complex surrounded by the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it was an unbelievable structure. A couple of weeks ago, my family and I went down to Newport, Rhode Island, and we toured the Breakers, the Cornelius Vanderbilt's uh, summer home. And uh, we, just, we walked through with our tourist headphones on, mouths wide open the whole time. Just this place is unbelievable. Well, if you've been there, take that experience times a million, and you kind of get what it would be like to see this place in the first century. It was an unbelievable piece of architecture. Uh, it struck awe in all who saw it, and especially those who walked into it. What we're going to read here in just a moment um, takes place as Jesus and his disciples have left this complex. They've left the temple. And this is a little bit of their vantage point as Jesus teaches. He teaches from an area called the Mount of Olives. There's a valley. You can kind of see its slope here to the bottom left of the picture. There's a valley that goes there and a hill that rises up on the other side. That hill is the Mount of Olives. And that's where Jesus and his disciples sit. And that's their vantage point as Jesus teaches them about the coming destruction of this complex, the city around it. And he gives us principles to guide us every chaotic season of church life. I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1. As he, that's Jesus, as he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. 
you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at that time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Everything we just read, my argument today, the way I'm going to approach it, pertains specifically to the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. And from these instructions to the early church, we find timeless principles that guide the church in chaotic times. So if you're taking notes, I want to give you these three principles that we should carry with us today. The first principle is this. The church trusts in what Jesus says about the future. How does the church exist? How does the church remain steady in chaotic times? First principle, the church trusts in what Jesus says about the future in verses 1 and 2. So our scene opens with Jesus and his disciples exiting the temple complex. As they're leaving, one of the disciples looks up and makes this statement uh, in verse 1. He says, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Now, those are true statements. The stones were huge, are huge. If you go there today, you can visit the western wall, and you can go in a tunnel underneath the western wall, and you can see the size of these stones that are cut out by hand and how perfectly they are joined together without mortar it is absolutely remarkable they are massive and the buildings were just incredible Um, but the disciples aren't necessarily making a statement in awe of the place Uh, like this is their first time stepping into disney world or something like that they've been here before they've seen the buildings they know all about it this is not just little kids standing in awe rather this is a statement of national pride It's as if they're saying, Jesus, look at what we have done. Look at what our people have accomplished. And what they might expect from Jesus is a bit of agreement. Yeah, this place is awesome. Oh, it's remarkable what's been done here. But Jesus answers in a way I don't think any of them expected. In verse 2, he says, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. 
So in Mark 13, 2, we have a prophecy from Jesus about the coming destruction of the temple and then with it, the city of Jerusalem. This prophecy from Jesus shouldn't come as a complete surprise. On at least two other occasions in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has spoken of God's coming judgment against the temple. Both of those happened in Mark chapter 11. In Mark chapter 11, you'll remember that Jesus walked into the temple complex and uh, he's in this place where there are money changers uh, and there's uh, uh, merchants selling things. And Jesus, enraged, turns over the tables, uh, knocks over the money changing stations, and he says to the people present there, it's written, my house should be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. Now that scene is often called the cleansing of the temple. But Jesus didn't cleanse the temple that day as if he's wiping away the dirt and preparing it for future use. Jesus judged the temple that day. He gave a verdict that day, and the verdict is, this place is rotten, and what I've done with just a few tables is going to happen on a grander scale under the judgment of God. In Mark 11, Jesus also speaks of the judgment of the temple through a living parable with a fig tree. You remember this scene? where Jesus and his disciples are on their way to the temple on this day. And they see a fig tree without any fruit. Jesus cursed it. And when they came back the next day, the tree was dead. And Peter and the disciples were astounded by this. It's a living parable that says the temple is like this tree that's supposed to be bearing fruit but doesn't. Therefore, it's cursed. It's good for nothing. So why is it that the temple and those associated with the temple are targeted for destruction? Well, in general, they have rejected Jesus, who is God in the flesh. What's more, their leadership has turned away from their covenant with God. The leaders have used their power to satisfy their own greed and their own pride. So Jesus makes this prophecy, chapter 13, verse 2, roughly 40 years after these words are made, a Roman army descends on Jerusalem and lays siege to the city. At the end of all of that, the temple was destroyed, the city was destroyed, and many thousands of lives were also destroyed. Now, the prophecy from Jesus in 13.2 was believed by his disciples on that day. They took serious what Jesus said, and they transmitted that prophecy to other believers and to the church in the ages after them. How do we know it's shared by the disciples with others? We know it precisely because it's recorded here in Mark's gospel. Remember, Mark is not one of the original 12. He's not a disciple of Jesus. He's not an eyewitness of Jesus. Rather, he's a ministry associate of Peter. And we think Peter is the primary source for Mark's information in his gospel. And so if Mark writes about this destruction, this prophecy, he does so because it's been given to him by someone else. The disciples heard what Jesus said. They believed it. They thought that information important enough to put it down for the church, the first century church, to know and to be prepared and to get ready. The early church took serious the words of Jesus about the future. And those words were from them an anchor, a guide that steadied them in the midst of all kinds of chaos. The church of Jesus Christ has always found his words about the future to be trustworthy. Just as his 
prediction about the destruction of the temple came to pass, so we expect everything Jesus has said about the future to come to pass. We don't look at the destruction of the temple and say, I got that one right, we'll see what happens with others. No, everything Jesus has said about the future is true and trustworthy and right. And so the church believes Jesus. When he says on this day the temple will be destroyed, as impossible as that might seem, it's true. And Jesus is to be believed and his word comes to pass. A little bit later in this chapter, we'll look at it in two Sundays. In verse 26, Jesus speaks of his return. The church believes that word that Jesus is coming again. And then when we read in Revelation chapter 22 that Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, we believe that word. It would be a mistake for us to doubt. We shouldn't read Revelation 22 with a wince. Oh, he said he's coming soon, but it's not been so soon, maybe not, maybe it means something different, when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, then you live in the reality of those words to be fulfilled. They give guidance and steadiness to us. Jesus' vision of the future is an anchor that holds the church firm in all difficulties. His understanding of the future is courage for us to live lives that are faithful to him no matter the cost. His vision of the future is assurance that suffering and sorrow have a shelf life. Satan is defeated. Death is destroyed. The church trusts in what Jesus has to say about the future. So if we're pulling principles from this chapter, that's the first one. The church believes, trusts in what Jesus says about the future. Second principle, it'll be up here on the screen for you that I want you to see from this passage, is that the church advances though surrounded by distress. Take a notes, write this down. The church advances, though she is surrounded by distress. Verses 3 through 13. So after the prophecy, in verse 2, Jesus' disciples ask him two questions. Pretty commonplace questions. Right? The first question is, when will this happen? The second question is, what are some signs that we can see that will tell us that these things are coming to pass? So they ask about the time and they ask about some signs. And how does Jesus answer? He answers by giving them non-signs. In other words, these are the things you will experience, but they do not mean the destruction of the temple is near. What are those three non-signs? I'll show you here on the screen. The three non-signs are these. First, there are going to be religious deceivers. In the time between Jesus' prophecy and the destruction of the temple, there will be religious deceivers, people who come in my name and say, I am he, don't believe it. There will be general sufferings. He speaks about wars, rumors of wars, famine, natural disasters like earthquakes. In the time between Jesus' prediction and its fulfillment, these things are just going to happen. And then there's going to be some specific sufferings also. There's going to be persecution You're going to be dragged in front of officials. You'll be whipped in synagogues. You're going to be incarcerated. These things are going to happen. These are the non-signs between Jesus' prediction and the destruction of the temple. When you see these things, they do not mean that destruction is near. So what's the point of knowing this? The point is this. Jesus is articulating for his church 
what the steady state of affairs are in this world. This is just going to be life as a follower of Jesus in a world marred by sin for the 40 years between his prediction and its fulfillment and for the 2,000 years past that. This is the steady state of affairs in the world. The church in every generation lives in this environment. Religious deceivers, general sufferings, specific sufferings, those things are true for the church in every generation, in every place where the church exists. Deceivers, wars, famine, earthquake, and persecution, these are not signs that the end is near. It's just life in this sinful world. And it's the world in which we proclaim the gospel. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus is asked for a time and for signs, he first responds with a warning about deceivers. Why do you think that is? I think it's because Jesus knows that Christians in the first century, as well as Christians in the 21st century, are prone to get lost in prognostication about the end of things. That we're enamored by the glitz and glamour of prophecies and signs and, and times and all of these things. Jesus said in verse 6, he says, Many will come in my name, claiming I am he and will deceive many. So listen, these deceivers are not from the world as if they're coming in trying to discredit Jesus. No, they are from within the religious community. They come in the name of Jesus, and they state with some sense of authority, I am he, or here he is, or there he is over there. And Jesus' instruction to his church is this, do not believe it. Who are these people? They are deceivers. When they come in this way and say these things, they are misleading the church. Now, I'm convinced that Christians today are more accepting of nonsense, end times heresy than any other heresy. Certain words just trigger in us a response. Israel, ah! Armageddon, millennium, ah! And we, we lose the ability to discern. Some preacher with a book published and some microphone on TV comes with clout and he says things that are in blatant violation of Christ's words in Mark 13. But we accept it. We take it. We run with it. But when these charlatans publish their books or preach in their pulpits or make their movies, be careful that you don't swallow the poison that they're giving you. Jesus strikes a familiar chord throughout Mark 13. Over and over again, he tells his followers to watch out. In verse 5, he says, watch out. Verse 9, it's be on your guard. Verse 23, be on your guard. Verse 33, be on your guard. Verse 45, keep watch. Verse 37, watch. So the next time you hear someone say that the end is near because of this war or because of persecution or because a political rival takes the White House or because the U.S. Embassy in Israel has been moved to Jerusalem, then you take yourself to Mark 13 and do not get up until you believe the words of Jesus. 
You can say amen to that if you want. What Jesus has to say about these things is trustworthy and true. Other people, they've got books they want to sell and private jets they want to pay for. Jesus is to be trusted when it comes to all of these things. Mark 13 should guide you and keep you from deception. Now, although the church of Jesus Christ exists in this steady state of distress, there is hope that Jesus points to. The hope is this, the church is not defeated and the church is not alone. We live in a steady state of distress, but we are not defeated and we are not alone. How do we know we are not defeated? We're not defeated because of what is happening in the midst of all of this turmoil. And what's happening? Look at verse 10 with me. Jesus says, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Now, that might not seem to make sense. Uh, You might say, well, okay, by the time the temple's destroyed, Cody, in AD 70, the gospel hasn't gone to every nation. It hasn't reached Mexico, and it hasn't reached the United States or Canada. It's It hasn't reached every nation yet. So how can this verse, verse 10, be only about the destruction of Jerusalem? And that's that's the right question. It's the reason, one reason why many people would say the entire chapter deals only with the second coming of Christ. So while it's true that the gospel had not reached every geographical nation by the time the temple was destroyed in AD 70, it had reached the limits of the Roman Empire. And in multiple places in the New Testament, the boundaries of the Roman Empire are referred to as the uttermost parts of the earth. Paul, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, talks about the gospel proclamation, quote, throughout the whole world. Now, he doesn't mean the whole world literally. What he means is the Roman Empire. Also in Colossians chapter 1, he speaks about the gospel going to every creature under heaven. Well, again, it hasn't reached Alaska when Paul writes this, but that's not what he has in mind. He uses this big language to describe the boundaries of the Roman Empire. Also in Romans chapter 16, he talks about the gospel reaching all the Gentiles. Luke also understands this phrasing this way when he writes the book of Acts. I feel like, is my microphone cutting in and out a lot? It's not? Okay, feels like it is. So uh, Luke, when he writes the book of Acts, uh, he uses this same type of language. Acts is written according to this geographical procession. Remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And as you read through the book of Acts, you're taken geographically on a trip through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And do you know what that location is, the uttermost parts of the earth? At the end of Acts chapter 28, when the Apostle Paul lands as a prisoner in Rome, there that symbolism is fulfilled, the uttermost parts of the earth. So my argument is that verse 10 is not telling us that the gospel has to be preached in every geographical country in order for Jesus to return. I'm saying here Jesus is saying the gospel is going to spread throughout this Roman Empire, throughout the known world, and then the temple will be destroyed. If we hold that verse 10 teaches that Christ will not return until the mission of worldwide evangelism is accomplished, then we are believing that 
the return of Christ is held hostage by the church. I can't get on board with that. I can't get on board that the church is sovereign over Jesus in the timing of his return. Is it true that the gospel has to go to every nation? Absolutely. And it is absolutely true that we should move with urgency to see the gospel go to every tribe, tongue, nation on earth. We must do that. But we don't do that in order to hasten the return of Christ. We do it because the return of Christ could happen any second. That's where the urgency for global evangelism comes from. Not to open the door, but because that door is open in any moment the trumpet could sound and Christ would return and evangelism is dead. So verse 10 speaks with an urgency to his people. And it gives them encouragement that though they live in times of chaos, the church is not defeated because the gospel continues to advance. You're going to be persecuted. Religious people will beat you and call you a blasphemer. But don't be afraid. The gospel goes to the ends of the earth even in the midst of all of that chaos. The church is successful in all of this turmoil. The gospel is not impeded in any way. There's encouragement because the church is not defeated. Also, the church is not alone. In the midst of all of this, he does not leave us alone. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So in that persecution moment, when you're arrested because you speak my name, and you are threatened with imprisonment or beatings or death, don't be afraid about what you're going to say. Just open your mouth. God, the Holy Spirit, is with you in that moment. He speaks in that moment. We're not alone. We saw this very thing come to pass in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, two of the four disciples who get this information from Jesus in Mark 13. They're arrested by Jewish authorities for telling people about Jesus. And Acts chapter 4 verse 7 tells this. It says, the authorities had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. The Holy Spirit speaking. They're not alone in that moment. God is with them and empowering them to proclaim the gospel even at the threat of death. A fun study would be to look at the book of Acts at all the places where people are filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you know what happens when people are filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts? Every single time they proclaim the gospel. Every time. The Holy Spirit is with you and will speak in you. In a steady state of persecution, the church is not alone God the Holy Spirit is present in your persecution and gives Christians power to speak a faithful testimony even at the threat of death. I think it's really important that the promise of verse 11 is not for physical protection or escape, but for the right words to speak in that moment. So the church of Jesus Christ has always existed among deceivers, warmongers, famines, natural disasters, and persecution. It's in that environment that God is present 
and empowers his church to endure persecution and proclaim the gospel with incredible efficiency. The church is anchored in these tumultuous times in her success. One last principle that we pull out of this passage. Third and finally, the church is preserved by the sovereignty of God. The church is preserved by the sovereignty of God. The next slide will have that for you to help you with your note-taking. So Jesus has been asked, what's the time and the signs? And he answers first by giving non-signs, right? These are not the things that signal the destruction of Jerusalem. But next, in verses 14 through 23, uh, Jesus then gives the disciples um, some obvious instructions and help for making sense of the destruction of Jerusalem. He gives them a sign in verse 14. How will we know when this thing is happening and when we need to act? And in verse 14, Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, the identification of that phrase, the abomination that causes desolation, has been the subject of endless debate. Now, the phrase is first found in the Bible, not in the Gospel of Mark. It's found in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And in the, in, in the book of Daniel, when this phrase is used, it's describing or predicting the desecration of the temple by idolatrous worship. That prophecy comes to pass in the form of this wicked uh, ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. And when Antiochus attacked Jerusalem, he built a pagan altar on God's altar, and there he sacrificed pigs on it. So when the holy places of God are taken over for the purpose of idolatrous worship, that is the abomination that causes desolation. It happened uh, once to God's people in the Old Testament, and Jesus describes it happening again at the destruction of the temple. So Jesus instructs his disciples that when they see this thing happen, they're to flee. Time is of the essence. Don't go back to your house. Don't go get your coat. Just run. And you can hear the compassion of Jesus as he describes what it's going to be like. In verse 17, he says, How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. He describes this historical event as being of the most intense suffering possible. Now, we have a primary source, a first-person account of what the Roman siege of Jerusalem was like. It's from this ancient historian, a guy named Josephus. He was present. He saw it with his own eyes. And the details he shares about the suffering, the bloodshed, the torture, it is beyond imagination. I was going to read an excerpt of some of these things today, but I thought better of it. I'll leave it to you to look it up if you wish. It's easy to find. And awful as it was, it was not as awful as it could have been. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. So Jesus tells his disciples the destruction will be horrible, but it has a time limit. It has boundaries. 
God, out of faithfulness to His covenant people, will cut short those days. The destroyers of men do not get carte blanche to move as they wish for as long as they wish. God has put boundaries on their destruction. What Jesus has described here is a specific suffering that reveals this timeless truth, right? The specific suffering is the destruction of Jerusalem. The timeless truth is that God has numbered the days of His people's suffering. I'm not certain that we're done with the abominations that cause desolation. I don't believe it's a one-time event, or rather a two-time event, one for the book of Daniel, one for the gospel of Mark. There are at least those two in biblical history. There may be more, and I would argue there have been more, as idolatrous violence is enacted against the church. Now, it may be hard for us to imagine such a scene, an abomination that causes desolation, where a holy place of God is taken over for idolatrous worship. It can be hard for us to imagine it, especially from as quaint a scene as the one we're in right now. But for Christians who've encountered ISIS in the Middle East, they are living the apocalypse now and have been for years. They don't read the Bible with a United States-centered understanding of end times events. They look out their window and they see abomination that causes desolation as houses of worship are taken over by violence, destroyed or used for pagan purposes, idolatrous purposes. When armed combatants destroy the church, attack Christians, enslave women and children, there we find abominations met by the ferocious faithfulness of the sovereign God of creation. Do you know what happened to Antiochus Epiphanes? Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 says it this way. It says, He will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. How long did he carry out his rampage? until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Who decrees that end? God does. Who pours it out on the head of the destroyer of men? God does. Antiochus Epiphanes and everyone like him runs into the meat grinder of God's justice. And God's justice does not stop with the finite monsters of men. But Satan, the great hater of God's people, sits in the Lord's crosshairs with the date of his demise clearly marked on God's calendar. The church is anchored by the sovereignty of God who cuts short the days of destruction and has orchestrated the end of his enemy and the enemies of the church. Jesus has given us such monumental help today. We are anchored in tumultuous times, by trusting in what he says about the future. We're anchored by continuing in our successful mission, though surrounded by distress. And we are anchored by our good and sovereign God who preserves his church. Here's what will happen tomorrow morning. You're going to wake up and every news headline will be in all caps. It will be distress and chaos all around, and those will be accurate descriptions of what's happening. And that may even describe not just the world we, in, we, we live in, it may be a descriptor of your very life. 
The question you have to wrestle with is this. Am I held by the one who holds the future? Our enemy, Satan, the one who creates wars, famines, and natural disasters, works for your demise. But God will not let you go so easily. He came to us. God came to us. We call him Jesus Because he loves you, he died in your place for your sin. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And that means his words about salvation are trustworthy. The question is, will you say yes to Jesus today? Will you trust in him, the one who died and lives evermore, to be your savior, to forgive you, to give you new life and abundant life? This is the day your life can change forever by saying yes to Jesus. Now, a question we might ask of this passage, verses 1 through 23, is why all the fuss? Why is all this ink given to this horrible time that visited God's people? Well, I believe God has given us this passage in order to prepare his people to live steady in the midst of extreme trials. Uh, My family and I, we once lived in a house that had a, a finished basement, and two of our daughters shared a large bedroom in that basement. And they liked to play this game. Uh, One would be upstairs, one would be downstairs. And as the one began to go downstairs, the other one would hide. And when she got to the bottom of the stairs, the other one would jump out, do a little scare, and then fists would fly. And that was the game. So what would happen was this. Whoever the, the girl was that was going down the stairs, both of them would do this. They would issue a warning. Not knowing if anyone is there or not, just the potential. If you scare me, I will destroy your face. And and then she would summon her courage and clench her fists and make her way down the stairs, ready for whatever might happen. So knowing the threat is there can make all the difference in our perseverance. That's what this passage does for us. The principles we learn from Jesus' instruction to his disciples should settle us, should steady us, should give us courage as we speak the gospel and look to the sky for his return. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, thank you for your word to us this morning. It grieves me to think that our brothers and sisters in the first century lived through such a horror as was described here and many more. But let us learn from the words of Jesus that prepared them. Let us learn from their experiences that we would be anchored and guided through this day with these eternal truths from you. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for strengthening us for the work you've given us to do in the midst of chaos. Let us not be a people who quiver in fear or worry about the future, but walk steadfastly in courage and confidence, knowing you are with us and you empower us in the mission you've given us. God, this morning, would you draw to you friends in here that have lived their lives in uncertainty. Let them know for sure that they are held by you, the one who holds the future, and let them experience that through faith. Bring new life today as they trust in you. God, we praise you because we know the future is certain. We know the victory is yours. Christ is vindicated, exalted, glorified forevermore. And your children will be with you in that. We praise you for that day to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.